buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions. And I am right now on post-production editing on the Lady Hyde and uh, getting ready to render out a preview copy to check out first or maybe about second cut and uh, going through and seeing what I need to um, add or subtract or whatever from there. But uh, yeah, feeling good about it right now. Got a good little running time on it. A little lean mean, about 83 minutes or so. So that's always good. It's always good to have something around uh, at least, you know, 72 to 73 minutes and uh, not anything over the 90s, you know. I think nowadays anything over two hours is just crazy. So, But uh, one thing that's under two hours is this film, uh, which you tuned in to listen about, and that is epi- uh, film 23, Venus and Furs. And uh, this is a good film. Uh, this is, of course, during the run with uh, the producer Harry Allen Towers. So that explains all the different countries. So here we go. Uh, companies, countries of origin, West Germany, Italy, and USA, and in brackets, UK. Uh, 1968, uh, original theatrical title in country of origin, Peroximus, Pua Uno, Morta, Riviere, Por Ermor. Uh, alternative title, Peromoxus, or Peroximus, uh, Italian poster. And then Peroximus Erotico, uh, alternative Italian poster. And uh, Black Angel is the shooting title, which is the preferred title of myself. Uh, after watching this film, I was am inspired to actually write a version like Black Angel. So, yeah, Black Angel shooting title. Uh, production companies on this... Um, of the four, of course, uh, Terra Filmkunst GmbH out of Berlin, uh, Cine Produzioni Associate out of Rome, uh, Commonwealth United Productions Incorporated out of LA, Los Angeles, California, which is that's the one version I watched. You see the big fancy Commonwealth United, it's like a big uh, title screen with like all the continents and it's all like blips and stuff, really fancy. And finally, uh, Towers of London. Harry Allen Towers is company, of course, out of London, and it's uncredited. Uh, theatrical distributors on this uh, Filmar out of Rome, Commonwealth United, through AIP in Los Angeles, and finally, Cincetta, uh, yeah, Cincetta Film Distributors out of London. Um. And timeline, okay, announced forthcoming in Variety was uh, July 31st of 1968. And shooting date on this is from October 1st of 1968. So I'm not sure how long it took. It looks like there were some delays after the effect and during editing and everything. So anyway, so that was from October 1st of 68. Then the Italian visa was issued on August 9th of 1969. Almost a year later, um, ten months. Um, so then it goes. Italy. It played August nineteenth of sixty nine, and uh, October twenty ninth of sixty nine. Then it was rejected by the UK BBFC January thirteenth of nineteen seventy. Uh, October, November, December. So about three months later. Then. Uh, Three months after that, April 7, 1970, actually April 23rd, 
1970. It finally played uh, the United States of America in Gastonon. Wow, I never heard this town before. Gas Gastonia, Gastonia, out of North Carolina. Gastonia, Gastonia. North Carolina, interesting. Uh, April twenty fourth of nineteen seventy, and then uh, played the United States again. The L.A. Los Angeles press screening on April thirtieth, six days later, nineteen seventy. Then uh, was reviewed by Variety on May sixth of nineteen seventy. Uh, week after that, then played Canada finally December fourth of nineteen seventy, and finally the U.K. May of nineteen seventy two. So. Yeah, little delays on those. Um, theatrical running times. Uh, West Germany, 96 minutes. Italy, 92 minutes. USA, 86 minutes. And UK, 90 minutes. Uh, okay, so, oh yeah, once again, all information taken from everything I'm reading is from the uh, amazing Bible of Franco knowledge, uh, Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1 by Stephen Thrower with Julien Grangier. Um, so yeah, that was that. Alright, cast on this bad boy. Uh, James Darren, of course, is the lead, kind of doing his best uh, Chet Baker impression, playing uh, Jimmy Logan. And you have Barbara McNair. Uh, I guess she was a singer. I have to look her up and see what she did. Um, she plays Rita, the nightclub singer. Not Blue Rita, but yeah, just Rita. Uh, Maria Rome is amazing in this. I think she's the best thing in this film, and personally one of my highlights of her career is this film. Uh, she plays Wanda Reed, the Venus in Furs. Uh, Klaus Kinski plays Ahmed Kortobal, Kortobai, Playboy. He's amazing, of course, as always in this. Really small role, though. Uh, Dennis Price, great as always, uh, plays Percival Cap, art dealer. The beautiful and amazing Margaret Lee plays Olga, fashion photographer. Paul Mueller, I think it's his first Franco film, plays uh, Herman. And then, uh, or actually, I think he might have been in one of the earlier, um, let me caution film. I'll have to look and see. Anyway, um, let's see where we're at. Uh, Adolfo Lestaretti plays Inspector Kaplan. Mirella Pampakil plays Woman Cleaning Mirror in Istanbul Apartment. And then Uncredited Manfred Mann and Jess Pianist and Jess Franco as the jazz trombonist. All right, credits uh, directed by Jess Franco from a story by Jess Franco and uh, Bruno Ledier, uh, or Jess Franco. Okay, so different people credited by different prints, but just, definitely Jess Franco and um, all these different editors. Uh, produced by Harry on Towers. Uh, Sergio Martinelli was camera operator. And what else I want to say here? Oh, yeah, we talked about music already. Um because yeah, yeah, music is uh, Manfred Mann on this and uh, Mike Hug. Um, what else we want to talk about? Uh, Commonwealth, yeah, forget them. Okay, so um, now, okay, let me, I'm, I'm going to kind of go through some of the review and not really tell you about the story as much per se because I we kind of go over that in the um, review that's coming up after the break. So, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll kind of hit some high spots that uh, Thrower likes. To, uh, has written about all right review now this is more like it after a run of compromised or insubstantial projects venus and furs is an icy shimmering jewel of a film in which photography music editing and art design coalesce into scene after scene of morbid mysterious beauty 
based on a story of Franco's own creation and originally to have been called Black Angel. The film was eventually released under the misleading moniker Venus and Furs, under which title it was widely distributed theatrically and on videotape in the United States of America. It's one of Franco's better-known films and has accumulated a fair amount of respect over the years, helping to balance the damage done to his reputation by some of his overexposed lesser works. Not everyone can be wooed by the film's loopy asymmetry and hard-to-follow plot. The psychedelic elements provide bait for the curious, but the meat of the film is the marriage between Franco's moody acedo-eroticism and the delirious currents swirling around the coldly beautiful Maria Rome, playing a vengeful spirit called Wanda. And not a fish called Wanda. Uh, add to this an eerie majesty an eerie magisterial score by Manfred Mann, and you have one of Franco's most spellbinding films. Venus and Furs invokes a nebulous dream world of confused and decadent characters whose high society anomic leads them from rape and murder to fear and despair. Three libertines responsible for the S&M murder of a beautiful young woman called Wanda fall prey to a supernatural guilt trip as the victim returns from the grave, a cool, detached, unknowable seductress luring them to destruction. Dressed only in a luxurious mink coat, panties, and stockings, the spirit of Wanda is part sensual, part reproachful, and implacably fatal. Franco's deep appreciation of jazz governs the plot as linear narrative is replaced by loose improvisation and circling variations on a theme. Very true. Uh, some of this improvisation is born of necessity. There was evidently less money available than would have been ideal. Um, for instance, footage of the real carnival is repeatedly used as padding. However, in a film so cynic, so cyclical, so cyclical, such an interesting word to read. Uh, so oneric, so obsessed with the repetition of haunting images and big words. Uh, uh, such deficiencies are easily forgiven. <coughs> uh, Venus and Furs has been for many years available only in U.S. release version from Commonwealth United, complete with added voiceovers and psychedelic optical effects that were not part of Franco's preferred cut. Narrative ellipses temporal oddities and shifts in the film's geography were also created by AIP's editors, meaning that the film Franco lovers have known so well is in fact an amalgam of his vision and the creative decision taken by a team of Americans. Writer Malvin Wad, Wald, uh, editors Henry Batista and Mike Posen, and post-production supervisors Robert and Harry Eisen. We'll consider them more in detail later. Um... And we'll also take a look at the rare Italian version, which is strikingly different. Yeah, I have the Italian version. It's a lot shorter. I haven't yet to watch it. Uh, I watched uh, this film actually for the first time for this review. The um, the standard one that was put out. What was it? Blue Underground or... Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, But yeah, I have the other one, so I'm, I'm going to watch that. It's a lot shorter and some things are different. But anyway, I'm going to go into all that detail because that would give away all the plot. Um, let's see... Uh, for now, it's important to point out that for all its beauty, Venus and Furs is not a pure statement of Franco's creativity, but something more akin to a collaboration. Uh, okay, and then they start going through 
shot by shot of what the film is. I'm going to kind of go th- go over this and that because um, we kind of go over that called uh, in the review later. Because yeah, I, I re- we did the review first, and I'm reading the intro second, kind of like I used to do in the old days. So uh, okay, so. Um, Let me think here. Um, okay, so... Um, kind of go over some of this. Um, so, uh, basically, some things happen, and then Wanda appears uh, in Rio, and she could either be a living double or the sort of the sort beloved by Jello film scriptwriters or a ghost haunting Jimmy, just as she will all those who played a part in her death. However, as Jimmy follows her through a garden, as she passes through a doorway, as in voiceover implores, no, Jimmy, go back. He ignores her, and suddenly they're making love. We could see that by their body entanglement that this was a physical encounter. If Wanda is a ghost, she's strikingly corporeal, which lays the groundwork for a third explanation, of which more later. So what are the killers themselves? Of the three, it is Cap, played by Dennis Price, who gets the most powerfully hypnotic death scene. Wanda appears in his bedroom, tantalizing him. Okay, let's go through all that. Um... But yeah, that's probably my whole... I say that later in the film. That sequence is my favorite in the whole film. Um, her untainable image drives him to a frenzy culminating in a final agonized orgasm of frustration which destroys him. All of this is achieved without dialogue and is driven instead by brilliant editing, luscious photography, and the strangulating intensity of Manfred Mann's breathtaking music. The entire sequence shows Franco at his most creative and technically accomplished, casting a sinister, erotic spell and timing it to perfection. Amen. Um, so, yeah, go for that. Um, yeah, so we talk about Wanda's death. Um, involves images, this time of a photograph- photographic variety. We see her setting up a Rostrum camera to photograph a macabre painting of a corpse-like face and examining a strip of photonegative. When Wanda appears in her doorway, using this as an excuse for lots of great shots in which Olga looks directly at us through the viewfinder and various photographic appliances, this ensuing photo session with Wanda playing along as a model will reoccur through many later Franco works, which I point out later on. Uh, see Eugenie and Sinner, Secret Diary of a Deaf Maniac. Um, yeah, um, and Eugene DeSaud as well. Uh, but Olga's heart is heavy, and when Wanda shows her true face, she can take it no longer. Olga's slow suicide in blue-tinted bathwater. Trickles of red from her gouged wrists seep over her breasts, mingling with the water. Achieve a somber funeral, a funereal beauty, and her melancholic last words are beautifully conveyed, emphasizing once again that this is a tale of gnawing, merciless guilt. Uh, Olga is a sadist afflicted, is a sadist afflicted with a conscious and unfortunate psychological combination. Uh, the revenge set pieces are added into a surrounding story with little or no connective tissues, such as the structure of the film, and then there's no need. Dropped in wherever Franco wants them. Um, that float free, islands of focus and coordination amid dreaminess. Uh, the third set piece is the weakest in conceptual terms, although it's very well acted and photographed. Um, yeah, I, I kind of talk about that later on in the um, portion, that third death scene. Kind of, it doesn't really make sense because it's like it's supposed to be a, uh, a story that he tells. But uh, da, 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 da. Okay, so um, that's funny. I, this, I'm reading this after I talked about it. He He points out a few of the same things that I that I saw too. Um, 
Like here it says, uh, when Jimmy sees Wanda kissing Olga at a party, he reacts with fury, throwing Olga across the room and dragging Wanda away by her elbow, just as Bill did to Lorna and Succubus. Uh, yeah, Rich, that's right after that. Um, let's see, what else we got here? Uh, here we go, good. Um, struggle between promiscuity and monogamy, which is prevailing against regarding open relationships and so-called permissive society that Franco would be still wrestling with in 1980, beautiful but pessimistic. Monogamy exists. Yeah, okay, good. So um, he talks about just the, the theme of the couples and, and how he revisits that much later um, quite a bit. Um, uh, let's see. Kind of going away, skipping over some things that they kind of give away a lot of stuff. And that would just kind of kill the uh, review later. Um here we go. The strongest passages of Venus and Furs possess the assured fluidity, revealing the essence of Franco's mature style. And yet, Jewel, though it is, flaws should be noted. The first start, the voiceover, is a significant problem. Lines like, I was trapped in a whirlpool that kept dragging me in deeper and deeper. Or, the real world had suddenly vanished and I was hypnotized. Are well-meaning attempts to convey the implications of Franco's images, but they're gauche and unnecessary a gauche and unnecessary if we could see this cut without jimmy's fake beatnik voiceovers i'm sure it would be greatly improved um on the other hand it would be hipsters contribute some unintentional humor um let's find their bag okay um ba -ba 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 -ba. so okay all right skip through that um And he is finally a lonely song on the short line. Uh, Venus's Furs is one of Franco's most engaging and memorable films. Yeah, I would say that. Um, it's definitely on my list of maybe top 15, top 20 of the 90 or so I've seen. Um, all right, so Franco on screen. Franco appears as the trombonist with Jiminy's... With Jiminy. Jiminy Cricket. With Jimmy's jazz quartet in the Istanbul club scene and one of the Rio gigs. And he's playing the piano at Herman's party cast and crew. Uh, James Darren may be a little out of his depth here, although perhaps we should be glad that Franco's first choice of leading man, Roddy McDowell, was not available. That's interesting, I didn't know that. Uh, Darren's role on the TV series Time Tunnel is quite apt, giving the time-traveling, psychedelic feel of the film. Um, Rita and I worked for Herman, whose parties never stop, says Jimmy, introducing the character played by Swiss actor Paul Mueller, soon to become an estimable value to the director's repertory cast in the 70s. Okay, yeah, so this was the first Paul Mueller film he worked with. Good. Margaret Lee was in demand in Italy at the time, having worked for Lucio Fulci, Lina Wertmüller, and Claude Chabrol. By 1968, she had already been drawn into Harry Allen Towers Productions. Venus and Furs was the third, followed by her roles in The Bloody Judge and the film Franco might have made had he not fallen out with Towers, Dorian Gray, 1970. Of the three American editors, Henry Batista was an industry stalwart who made the move to television in 1955 and worked there almost exclusively afterwards. Mike Posen was perhaps a shade more hip, having recently cut Bob Raffleson's Delirious. 
1968, as well as 22 episodes of the TV series The Monkees. Nicholas Wentworth was also the editor of Franco's Justine, so it's likely that he was the editor initially assigned to the film by Towers. Post-production supervisors Robert and Henry Eisen operated in the U.S. with Robert editing pictures and Harry editing music. All right. Let's see. So next is music. From the moment that Jimmy sees a woman's body washed up on the shore near Istanbul, Manfred Mann and Mike Hugg's phenomenal score draws the viewer deep beneath the waves of Franco's dream world. A mesmerizing theme for electric piano, synthesizer, sax, double bass, and drums weaves as eerie a spell as anything I've heard in the movies. It floats in a tidal lagoon between musical idioms, interruption of jazz, a splash of psychedelia, psychedelia, the spray of something from beyond, as if the tune is floating to us down the currents of time with the electric piano mimicking a harpsichord like fantastical chamber music reverberating from another country from another century. Franco, or the music editors, create further disorienting disorientation disorientation by layering two completely different pieces of music on top of each other. For instance, when Wanda first appears at the party where Jimmy Jimmy's bands are playing where Jimmy's band is playing, I should say, where Jimmy's band are playing. I guess it could be both. The laid-back jazz they're creating out is cross-faded and an indefinable cue for electronic strings and celeste. Manfred Mann himself can be seen playing electric piano for Rita's group during the song Let's Get Together and with James Darren and Jess Franco's band in Rio 2 although we get our closest look at him around the 58-minute mark when he leads the band through an up-tempo jazz number. Barb McNair sings the vocal number, pulling out all the stops, and for the end credits where she performs the title song with gusto. Uh, McNair, one of the foremost black women of American TV, was in great demand at the time. She had just come off the Barbara McNair and Duke Ellington special, February 1968, in which she sang Ellington's songs while he played piano. That's cool. Uh, she went on to become a regular fixture on shows like Ed Sullivan, Tom Jones, David Frost, Dean Martin, and Carol Burnett, and from 1969 to 1971 hosted the Barbara McNair Show for Motown Television Productions. Oh, very cool. I uh, learned something new every day. All right, studios. Uh, filmed at Estudio Bazacar in Barcelona and ATC in Grasferrata, Rome. Or Grasferrata, Rome. Uh, all right, location. Shot in Rome, Marabella, Spain, uh, Barcelona, and Istanbul. Certain shots in Istanbul look similar to those in Residencia or Residency for Spies, uh, but they're actually new, despite in some cases being shot from exactly the same angles. Party scenes were shot in Rome at the one-time villa of Italian producer Carlo Ponti, whose ex-wife had just won it from him in a divorce settlement and was hiring it out for cheaply for film shoots. All right, uh, let's talk about this a little bit here. Um, Venus and Furs was rejected by BBFC on the 4th of May of 7, 1970. Confusion abounds on the subject, however. Uh, they released a film called Venus and Furs on Double Bill with 99 Women in the summer of 72, but it's the other one. Um, however, the different directed by Daliano. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. 
Uh, okay, connections. Um, fans of Leopold von Sacher Massis' novel Venus and Furs will be disappointed to discover the movie has virtually nothing in common with it. The need or the seed for the film came instead from a conversation Franco once had with jazz legend Chet Baker. Speaking to Franco one evening at a French nightclub, Baker described his sensation of floating away from reality into fantasy during his trumpet solos as if astrally traveling, only to open his eyes and come down to earth with a bump in the same half-empty dive as before. The title, Venus and Furs, was imposed on Franco by the distributor, instead of his own preference, Black Angel. Franco says that the hero was originally meant to be black, with Rome as the object of his desire. Unfortunately, the American producers nixed the idea as racially unacceptable, although a white man making love to a black woman was deemed okay, hence is Jimmy's relationship with Rita. Resigning himself to the changes, Franco added scenes with Rome walking nude down a flight of stairs, dragging a fur coat behind her to try to justify the new title. Um, they talk about another film called Black Angel from the 40s that has no relation to it. Um, let's see. Uh, Venus and Furs recycles a key element from the diabolical Dr. Z, an eerie blonde stalking her three enemies and murdering them one by one. Yep, one of my favorite types of subjects. Uh, the striking Italian poster art was by the acclaimed commercial artist Valerie de Berardinus. Berardinus. Uh, the society party at which Jimmy remembers first seeing Wanda is populated by guests standing unnaturally still as if frozen in time, recalling uh, Alain Renault and Aline Robbie Garretts last year at Marimbald, 1960. During Jimmy's description of getting lost in the carnival with Wanda, Franco recycles a shot from Le Quedice Hombres, showing the sun rising and road sweepers cleaning up after the night's revels. The film ends with a quote from the metaphysical poet Jean Donnet's holy sonnet, I runneth to death, and death runneth to me as fast, and all my pleasures are like yesterday. Rumination of the fear of dying and its shadow of desire that speaks from the otherwise nameless currents of dread and mystery in the film. All right. Um, okay, so... I'm not going to go over all this, but the other versions section, because they talk about all the different cuts, or the different scene by scene, that's a little too, I don't know, it's good when you read it, but hearing it's just kind of boring. But I'll go through just glimpses of it. Uh, the film that we know as Venus and Furs is radically different to Franco's original conception. In 1970, 18 months after it was shot, the film's American co-producers, Commonwealth United, took a hold of the material and gave it a psychedelic makeover using copious optical effects and a histrionic, histrionic narration by James Darren. This narration, with its mashup of hippie and beatnik cliches, was written by Hollywood legend Malvin Wald, creator of the smash TV series Naked City which took time out from his busy schedule on children's TV hit, Doctari, to supervise the rewriting and dubbing. In interviews many years later, Franco declared himself unhappy with these changes, and although I personally enjoy the U.S. version, I can understand his dismay. Uh, for many years, the American version of Venus and Furs was the only one available on any home entertainment format. However, thanks to a TV transmission of the Italian variant, Proximus Pub. Pue una morta, Riviere, 
Por Amor by TBR Teletalia, we can now see another. Although even this presents problems, there are glaring and copious emissions of Franco-Shaw material, and to make matters worse, it too labors under psychedelic enhancements to the footage. The project that began life as Black Angel could really have done with a guardian angel to protect it from interference. Um, so it says basically that Paramoxius avoids much of the elliptical confusion of time and place, which runs right in the American cut and simplifies James Deren's role in the narrative. Um, or, and also, too, it's the editor on it is Bruno Matai, so that's different. Um, so it's not even Franco that cut it. Um, and basically, the Promixus submitted to the Italian censor ran. 95 minutes, 20 minutes longer than the off-air version. Um, so yeah, the shorter cut screen on TV appears to have been an attempt sometimes later to salvage a releasable version by obliterating the contentious material with optical trickery. But if the film had to be shortened due to its sexual explicitness, why would the editor go to the trouble of reformatting the storyline virtually from scratch? Um, that's interesting. So yeah, they just kind of talk about his thoughts on all the different sides of that. Um, so, I'm talking about how it starts and how it ends and the differences and after the credits and everything. So, um, the last 15 minutes are drastically different and also the whole Red Room sequence is missing, twist endings missing. And so, yeah, anyway, so, I don't know. I, I, I have that and I'm going to watch it now that I, but I think I'm going to like the, uh, the version that I've watched because even with warts and all, it's, uh, just much more filling piece, I think, and I'm sure the quality is much better than the, you know, uh, gray market uh, DVD-R of the Italian broadcast, for third generation or whatever, you know, so. But yeah, so that uh, concludes uh, this opening portion here of Venus and Fur, so. All right, I'm going to hit all the little bumper stuff because I forgot to put it in uh, the section coming up after the break, so. If you like the Franco Observer podcast and you want to see it keep going, well, it keep going anyways, but if you want to help out or uh, be a friend of the show um, in any ways, there's always a download button for either a one-time download or a monthly download. Um, sorry, download. I keep saying that. Donation. There's a donation button for one-time donation or monthly donation. Uh, we've had some people already do uh, one-time and monthly. And I appreciate that very much. Uh, so yeah, if you dig the show and uh, if you dig all these episodes, we're up to 84 now and we're going to go all the way up to 160, 170 something, whatever it goes, um, help us out and throw some change. That would be appreciated, especially this time of everything. So also too, uh, if you're on Redbubble, um, I have some uh, Franco uh, material um, paintings that have been changed to clothing and uh different items, mouse pads and bags and shirts and posters and all that stuff. I've done eight different uh, Lena paintings and Franco and all that. So uh, I've been selling some already to Quebec, Canada and to, uh, I think it was West Germany. So that's been really awesome. I've been very happy about that. So thank you. I'm sure they're listeners of the program and happen to check across that. So yeah, if you dig it, please tell everybody about it. I'm on Redbubble and uh, you'll see it there under the uh, Just Franco stuff. Um, under uh, Franco Observer or Mondo Visions or anything like that. So check that out. Um, 
Also, too, all the episodes, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast and have them uh, in your mailbox every Wednesday morning when the show drops. Uh, also, to download the episodes, uh, keep them handy, and uh, they're yours to keep. Uh, tell a friend about the show. If they dig it, let other people dig it. Um, I'd appreciate it. Help to keep the podcast going. Help to build the city of Franco lovers and Franco fanatics, Franco fans, all that good stuff. So we all dig Franco, and we dig his work. So tell everybody else about it, and keep the podcast growing. So I think it's... Uh, yeah, about a year and almost a half now, so it's crazy. Yeah, shoot, come about a year and a half now. So, all right, uh, you can also reach us if you want to at uh, email by email at uh, francoobserver at yahoo dot com. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook uh, pages there under the francoobserver dot com or francoobserverpodcast dot com. Um, and of course, our mission statement is praise and memory of Mr. Jess Franco, who uh, we just celebrated a anniversary of his. Uh, was April second was the passing anniversary of his passing. So didn't forget about that. Even though we've had a terrible day here in my city on April second, we had a mass shooting on that day, so it's pretty terrible. But uh, yeah, but yeah, so that was April second was the anniversary of Mr. Franco's passing. So. But yeah, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears, which I know I've done that to many people, so and hopefully many, many more. Um, all right, so hang out um, after the break, and after, after, after the bumper music, and you'll hear uh, myself joined by Miss Colley Sini on our, I think she told me it was the 12th, uh, her 12th appearance, uh, The Dirty Dozen of us on this Venus in Furs. And, uh, spoiler, we both like the film, and we both talk about it for, I don't know, about an hour or so. Hopefully you dig what we say, because uh, we have a lot of good um, insight and good conversation about this film. Like I would say to her later, good films inspire conversation, and they make you think, and uh, inspire things in your head, so, compared to just flat cinema, so... Yeah, this is definitely a film that does that. So hang out and listen to us talk about Venus and Furs. What is such as? Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, with Desperate Visions Productions. And uh, you are here today for episode 84, film 23, Venus in Furs. And um, watching Venus in Furs and joining me on this podcast is a returning um, guest reviewer from Los Angeles, California, Miss Colley Sini. How are you today, Colley? I am fantastic. Very good to hear. Uh, so... Um, how many times have you seen Venus at first? Uh, twice. This is okay. my second time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was my first time watching it. Um, I bought this DVD like 15 years ago, and it was still wrapped. And I finally took the cellophane off uh, before I watched it. It was really funny. I was like, wow, this has been on my shelf for 15 years. I bought it. I just never fucking watched it. It just sat there, you know? And one day, one day, and I got psyched for it. And like, okay, so reading the back really doesn't sell it well. They have it as... Uh, James Darren stars as a traumatized trumpeter sucked into a whirlpool of psychosexual horror 
along with his sultry girlfriend, singer Barbara McNair, a kinky lesbian, Margaret Lee, a depraved playboy, Klaus Kinski, and the mysterious, insatiable beauty, Maria Rome, who may lead them all... That's not selling it good. That's selling it great. I'm here for all that. (laughs) Who may lead them all straight to hell. No, but it doesn't say that she's a ghost or it doesn't say anything about revenge or a kill. You know, and like, if I would have known that, I really would have watched it quicker because like reading that, it sounds like they're all just a group of people that are just going to like go party or something, which that's part of it. But I don't know. I just, I just think that description is just so like, I don't know. In my opinion. Then you wouldn't like, you know, get so caught off guard when you watch it and go, oh, it's happening. If you yeah. are going in. But no, it's it's definitely so. I mean, I never watch trailers. I'm, I am I don't even read the backs of things, barely. I just try to put it in and let the magic yeah. happen. But like as a filmmaker <laughs> myself, I always think of like, okay, how do you pitch your film in like, you know, two or three sentences or how can you boil things down in the, the best essence of the product to like push it through, like how you describe something the best way. See, I think that the way that Jess accomplishes that is by putting Jess Franco on the DVD. Right. No, I, I <laughs> but at this time though, still he wasn't. Yeah. I don't know that. But I don't know. I just think if they would have sold it as, you know, um, a spirit returns from beyond the grave to, to, you know, kill the people who saw her die or so. I'd be like, well, that sounds like my fucking totally type of jam, you know? And, yeah. I love those movies and like that's and I've done I've written films and made films that have that theme of a woman who dies and comes back from the dead and kills people that's like my fucking lifeblood so when I learned that this <laughs> film was like that I was like my god I gotta watch this it's been on my show for 15 years I haven't fucking unpeeled it yet you know so I was really excited to watch it and like I've written before these little joys in life I'm trying to like embrace more like oh I get to watch Venus and Furs today and it was like a joy like oh I get to finally experience this and, and see this thing and, and it's been in my room the whole time like I said all these years and stuff and just to have something that now it's time to have this joy it's it's kind of cool and I'm glad it lived up to it to, for me and it didn't live up for me in certain ways as well but we'll go into that as we talk about it and stuff so let me give their brief synopsis and then we'll talk about Venus and Furs uh, okay um, synopsis a beach near Istanbul. Wandering aimlessly along the shoreline, jazz musician Jimmy Logan finds a body washed up by the tide. To his consternation, he recognizes the mutilated female corpse as Wanda, a beautiful young woman he once saw being raped and killed during an S&M party. Her killers were a millionaire playboy called Ahmed, an art dealer named Cap, and Olga, a fashion photographer. As present and past become hazy, Jimmy flees to Rio de Janeiro after witnessing the murder and takes refuge in a steady but lifeless relationship with Rita, a nightclub singer. His fragile stability is shattered when Wanda turns up in Rio at a concert he is playing, after which events slide ambiguously between memories of the past and situations of the present. Wanda seduces Jimmy and the two become lovers, which is the last nail in the coffin of Jimmy's affair with Rita. Meanwhile, Wanda is hunting down and killing first Cap, then Olga, and then Ahmed. In each case, she seduces them and then drains the life of her one-time torturers. If Wanda is an avenging femme fatale, what are her plans for Jimmy? So yeah, that's that's his, uh, Stephen Thrower's uh, synopsis of the film. So um, before we go back and forth, for me, this is like a huge film for Franco because like, 
this theme he's done before with like Divalkal Dr. Z and Orloff to a certain extent, but then he uses these themes and situations in this film so much more in his films, including She Killed in Ecstasy, which is one of my favorite films. And, you know, of that, of the woman killing the people one by one for her lover, you know, type thing. But, uh, but no, what, what is it? Uh, do you like this film a lot? Is this one of your favorites? Is it one you just enjoy or what's your take on this film? Um, I mean, I really love it. I think it's a great film. It's one of, you know, Franco's one of my favorites, but um, I mean, I, you know, I, I saw like people commenting on your Instagram saying it was their very favorite Jess Franco film. And I was like, wow, I don't know if I'd go there, but I mean, it's, it's really, really solid. It's, you know, I, I mean, I can go off about all the things I love about it if you want. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I figured as we talk about it, we'll probably go back and forth or whatever, but for me, one thing that really strengthened for me was um, Maria Rome. Um, I've always liked her a lot of stuff, but watching this, my appreciation of her, like really, really jumped a lot. And I was thinking about her, and it was cool, like, listening to an audio interview of hers that was about 10 minutes long. That's on the DVD. And she's talking about her past. And, and it was probably recorded, you know, maybe 20 years ago or something. And uh, she's talking about all the Franco films and that. And I guess, like, she kind of started, like, as a kid doing theater and stuff. And she was a little kid acting in the stage and all that stuff for a long time. And she, like, got with Harry on Towers and that and did, like, Castle Fu Manchu and those early films, like, when she was, like, 18 or 19. And he was a lot older, you know. So uh, she kind of reminded me of um, Lena in that aspect where she was a real go-getter. And especially this time frame of her being naked in all these films. And she was this producer's wife or girlfriend or whatever at the time. And, you know, putting herself out there for, the, for her guy doing this film and putting herself into the film and, and really just... Being brave. Yeah, do, putting into all these situations and the themes and the stories and, the, you know, 99 Women Eugenie and Justine and Bloody Judge and you know whipped, tortured and raped, killed and all this stuff, blah blah, and just make love with all these people. And it's really, really made me appreciate her. Gosh, she's so beautiful in this film too. She's just hypnotically beautiful. Yeah, get lost. Her face, her teeth, her eyes, her everything about her hair, all the wigs, her skin. Just gosh, she's so beautiful, and it's just such a so very, very strong in this and. uh yeah, it doesn't, I don't know, she's very underrated, and, and I think this is a really strong film for her. And she really carries this film a lot, even with the people that she's supported by in the film, you know. Oh, for sure. She's the, she's the star of the show. Yeah, and, yeah. and she's, she's good. Um, when I first read it and I started watching this, I was thinking, uh, a guy commented that he had had parallels to this with uh, Lost Highway with David Lynch, with the doppelgangers and that. But with me... I saw Twin Peaks and I, and I brought this up a few times with Franco. I'm, I don't know. I think David Lynch might've watched a little more just Franco and seeped into his conscious. Cause you have a beautiful blonde woman being washed upon the shore, dead half nude. And she was involved in this party with all this debauchery and these aspects. And then you, they try to figure out who it is, you know? Uh, and there's a part where she's laying there dead and there's a red room and Dennis Price is standing real still against the room. And Klaus Kinski walks over and like, plays with her dead body to see who she was. And that sequence is like kind of David Lynch shot really at an angle in that red room and just very bizarre looking. And there's a couple of touches where you can just see it's got that kind of Lynchian aspect to me that I really liked. I was like, okay, you know, and uh, it's nice to see people that you admire have things that maybe they subconsciously pulled or consciously pulled from other, other artists. uh, Yeah. Yeah. 
that whole the whole movie for me reminded me of uh, i mean it, it's the same that sort of um uh the playfulness almost of uh, it the Kurt Vonnegut, um, the Slaughterhouse Five. When okay, yeah, yeah. To say, uh, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. Right. That's what it felt like to me. Like he was Billy Pilgrim, and he was unstuck in time. Like he was wandering, trying to figure out what happened, but he was really kind of just lost. I don't know. It. Yeah, I get that vibe. That's kind of silly, but like heavy. But you know, yeah. like there's this sort of. It's like a waves of of what's real what's not real i don't know it's so beautiful it's just like a giant poem it's really i mean yeah gorgeous film yeah and then like i could see later that parts of it were later turned up in um uh, high plains drifter which is a film i love about especially the beginning when she's whipped and she's kind of killed and it's kind of like real dark you see flashes of light and, and then where she's being killed and then her ghost of where Clint Eastwood's killed and he comes back as a ghost and kills these people. Yeah, well, totally. Like I can this. see that. Yeah, yeah. I always, I don't know, that rape scene is intense in a High Plains Drifter. And yeah. Like, that's how it starts out with the, 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 the just one. I didn't really relate that until you said it. But it's yeah, amazing. just kind of the avenging spirit. And you see, and especially with the lighting, it's like, well, interesting. And then uh, uh, Hang Him High is that way too, where he's killed and he comes back and you know, you don't know if he's dead or if he's alive. Or, but especially High Plains Drift, they really make it ambiguously, especially as he walks away in the end and he kind of vanishes, you know. So, yeah, like in this, so it's her. I was laughing because it starts off where the first shot you see in the film is her with the fur coat and she's out of focus. And I started laughing. I was like, oh, here we go. And here's the first thing on the list is, you know, one out of focus shot. But then it's smart because she's a ghost. And she's not in focus. She's not real. So she's not going to be in focus. And so every time she comes to a shot, she's out of focus. And you see the person there in focus. And then she's back in focus again. So I thought, okay, that's cool. He's, he's using that as a tool and not as just being sloppy or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's playing with it. Yeah. Um, I did think of, uh, there's so many like of the close-ups though. I was remembering your list and thinking, oh, he'll be happy for that. Oh yeah. This film has <laughs> tons of mirror shots. I've, I was in there right mirror, 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 and the mirror shots in this are just beautiful. And the mirror shots are so important in this film. And we'll talk about that more when we get to it. But yeah, it's almost like, especially the scene with her and Dennis Price, you only see her in the mirrors. And then when he looks, she's like not there. It's just, just filmed so perfectly. It's like a, a total chess game that he's playing. Um, so yeah, so this film, uh, starting off, uh, I was going to kind of knock it out in place because I actually wrote quite a few notes for this. Um, so yeah, so what's interesting is, uh, kind of the precursor of this, I read a little bit and listened to Franco talk. Originally he wanted this film to be called Black Angel and I kind of want to write a remake or a reimagining and use that title. I think it's a great title, Black Angel. And she is like the Black Angel of Death. And you know, coming down to killing people, but also in his original idea of how he of how he wanted it, he wanted a black trumpet player and a white woman that he had fantasies about, and that all this was going on. But with prejudice and shit, sixties at the time, the producers weren't hip on having a black male lead and a white female lead and have them in love. Franco said. But interesting, yeah. But he was okay. The main guy looked so much like I thought he was like jess franco's idealized version of himself didn't you kind of see that like oh, no. 
but here's the thing as i got into it more i was like oh no wonder why i love this film so much i'm a huge chet baker fan and this film mm-hmm. is basically about chet baker well not about chet but chet baker was a big influence so franco talks about how this film was inspired by when he met chet baker and had a conversation with him how chet baker talked about when he plays a solo even if it's two or three minutes he'll go off into his head which we all feel that way as creative types where you go into your own world and you imagine life or death or situations or stories and all this other stuff. And you're in another place and then you come back to reality and you come back and then you're back to where you are and everything. And that was, so Franco took that idea of, okay, this all is going on a, a trumpet player and he fantasizes about this other thing or this other idea of this fantasies and he's in another world or place. And then he comes back to the, to his reality, you know, and this film is almost like a song too, which of course, a lot of his films are jazz and tempo where it starts off big and then it has all those soft interludes. And in the end, when they're fleeing, it goes real fast with the pace and it finishes up the song and then it ends on the little somber thing of what we will talk about the ending later, but, but how that ends. So it's, it's really, really cool. It's totally jazz all the way through. So he said after they rejected the black lead, then he went back to the Chet Baker thing and really thought about that more and kind of rewrote it with that in mind. And James Darren, got the part because he knew Chet Baker, he said, and he based a lot of his standing by himself playing like Chet Baker at the party and some of his mannerisms and sitting at the bar, being real introspective, drinking and being in his world like Chet Baker and stuff. So he really based a lot of that. And I was like, Oh shit, I no wonder why it's, I had more of a affinity for it. You know, you just blew my mind a little bit. Cause <laughs> I, well, I, you know i went off to joshua tree this weekend for my birthday and all that and um chet baker came on my playlist and the boy i was with we we got so excited and we started talking about chet baker all like songs and talking about let's get lost and you know all the movies and ethan hawk's film and and all of that and so i was thinking it was because of that when i was watching it today that i was being reminded of Chet Baker and thinking about Chet Baker. And I was like, it's probably just because, you know, we like fangirled and fanboyed about Chet Baker. Right, right. So, but now it's like, you're saying that it was not all wrapped together. Yeah. It's funny. The world is so funny the way things all collide. Oh yeah. I'll connect sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Especially if you watch. Like, That's crazy. It really was. Okay. I'm, it's all not, cause, you know, you start, I always second guess myself. Like it's gotta be like, I'm, I'm projecting onto it, you know? Right. right. You see what you want sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's true. Like, Especially like when he was saying that and they were showing certain shots, like, oh yeah, totally you can see, especially when he's at the parties playing a lot, he's kind of standing off to himself and the way he holds the trumpet and everything is very, very chip maker. So I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. But uh but he said, Yeah, he said it was fine to have the white guy have a black girlfriend because if they have a baby, uh, that's a shame on her. But if it's the flip way around, then it's a shame on the white if they have a black baby. So, like, that was the producer's whole, like, racist bullshit. Yeah, so it's all this bullshit. <laughs> so he had to, like, change his fucking shit around with his script. And it was just like, whatever. So he had all these things that were forced on him, like that. And then he's, like, doing the film. And he's doing all this stuff. And then, you know, being with Harry Allen Towers, he always has multiple producers on his films, the nine films or ten films he did with him. Uh where he always has like five if you listen to past shows you know, he has like five he has like somebody from west germany italy france or he had like five different countries so you have to have a guy from this country or a guy or a, some actor from that country to try to sell to that market when you distribute the film you know so right. like for this he uh 
got James Darren and Chris got Maria Roman and all that stuff, but he had to deal with all that bullshit. And then them changing the title on him where he wanted to just call it, he said, okay, I can do Venus first because they wanted to sell it as that of just her with the fur coat and all that shit. But that's one thing that I dislike about this film so much that was mm-hmm. just like, I would shake my head is that fucking song. Every time she kills somebody, Venus is first, you like will be smiling. I love like, that song. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's fine <laughs> when she's singing on stage, but every time somebody dies, they have to like hit you with the fucking, so it reminded me of like watching Blade Runner with the narration or without the narration. Like, it was like too much explaining things and it was like, ex- you know, instead of like reading into what you want, they're like, okay, this is what's going on. And it's like, they had to like, by the way, you're watching Venus and Furs in case you forgot, you know, it's like, I know. That song slapped, so I was down for it. I loved it. It was like a, yeah. And it, it like powered you up because, you know, like she's, she's getting her revenge and, and it's kind of like this triumphant song. of yeah. Like, yeah. She's getting it. Venus is but she's it. like this ghost. I don't know. It just, it just to me, it's like a clashing of crazy her, her coat and, and I, yeah, I mean, I was going to say Black Angel is a cool name, but I think Venus and Furs is, the, you know, I mean, you know. It's but also, too, it sucks because Venus and Furs, you know, they were trying to sell it as like, you know, the facade was big. So they were going to take the Gulf of Iowa's at the Basakis Sky. Uh, I forgot the author. Um, the, the, yeah. 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 Yeah, so they're kind of taking that title, Venus at Furs, just in literal aspect, like she's a Venus, she's a goddess of love in mm-hmm. Furs. But if you look at, oh, Venus and Furs, you think you're going to see the movie Venus and Furs based on the book or something. When they're putting out Justine, Eugenie, Venus and Furs, you know, and they're the saw that was popular at the time. So I don't know, to me, that's kind of a funny sell. It's like they, they really wanted to have that title and her with the jacket and like that was their selling thing like they really wanted to pitch that instead of oh let's make the movie and then sell the movie it's like no we need this image or this you know venus and furs like we need that i feel like i mean jeff's would have been part of that because you know he loves desaad so much and masok is like you know the counterpart that's like that's like the side thing I also need to say that another song that came on my playlist this weekend was by the band Venus in Furs, I-N-F-E-R-S. Okay. Um, yeah, clever, clever. That's funny. Yeah, and of course, there's the <laughs> underground, of course, you know. So. Yeah, the velvet, you know, yeah, we have to say, I'm just open yeah. around. But uh, yeah, okay, so that's that on that. Uh, so yeah, Chick Baker, <laughs> that was pretty interesting. Um, uh, what else I have here? Uh, so we have... Um, um, I like the uh, ni- uh, the nice uh, Commonwealth United title screen that pops at the beginning. The little all the little countries pop up says United Commonwealth. I thought that was like, ooh, this looks like a fancy movie. It's already starting off really big. Um, I like uh, yeah, starts out a focus shot I mentioned uh, with her. Um, and um, let's see what we got here. Free. Um, oh yeah, so you have a lot of freeze effects. You have a lot of effects after the title. Um, uh, which was really, really interesting. Like I know Franco talked about how a lot of the opticals were put on after he had been done with the film. He like made the film and then they, and it didn't come out until about a year after he had made, made it, which was quite interesting because he's usually a lot quicker. Yeah. He's usually churning, burning. Yeah. This kind of sat on the shelf. So it's like, well, this film is only like uh, 86 minutes. So I guess without all the because i have the other version proximus which i haven't watched yet the italian one which cuts out a lot of the optical stuff 
it cuts mm. out the ending. It cuts out a few other little things that he didn't add on, but it cuts it down to like 70 something minutes. So I think a lot of the shots of her walking, they slowed down and him running. They slowed all that shit to kind of like add time to the film to kind of make it salvageable. So they did a lot of that stuff after the fact. And like 20 minutes of carnival footage. Well, yeah, well, yeah no, that's <laughs> a little bad. You see that a lot of stuff, especially like the girl from Rio. I was thinking of this, and you see, you see a lot of the same stuff like that, which is funny I because love that stock footage, though, all the carnival stock footage rules. Yeah. Like, where else are you going to see that, you know? Right. And that's a thing, like, and that's an old 50s, 60s exploitation trick is carnivals, parades, like a lot of the cheap movies, Hirschborn and Lewis, you see like parades and uh, Ray Dennis Steckler would film a lot of that because you're filming a public event, you don't need permits, you have all this production value of all these people in costumes, you have all these stuff going on that you don't pay anything for and you're capturing and it adds a lot of value to your film. So all right. this stuff, all these people call all this stuff is amazing that if they were to pay all that, that'd be millions of dollars or whatever. So it's like they got all this shit for free so they're going to add 10 minutes of, yeah, which is funny because in this film, they go back and forth. And you see that parade. It's like, I know the parade is a multi-day parade, but they may act like it's like, you know, one week of this fucking parade going on every night. Though. Yeah, right, yeah. Like, and then we went back and, and the parade was still going on. The parade, like his, his face is like, you know, just superimposed. Yeah, I crossed it, yeah. It's funny. It's like, man, this parade just steady 24 hours a day for fucking four days straight. Like, people are tired. <laughs> um, so, um, um, what was cool is I, I liked the beginning where he's just on the beach and he and his trumpet's buried and it's almost like his art or his creativity is buried and he has to unbury his creativity and then once he unburies his creativity and plays his art or his tune or whatever his his talent is when she materializes and it's almost like he summons the dead or he's bringing back memories of, of why he stopped doing what he did aside from the ending no, I mean, we're not going to the ending but like it's where like okay, well, it's a puzzle and it's locked or a key. And with him taking the trumpet and playing, he's like um, conjuring up the past, you know, conjuring up memories because her body comes out right after he starts playing the, playing the trumpet, playing the tune. Right. And he says that, that being a man like him without a trumpet is like uh, being without words. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and she shows up with uh, – Blue panties and purple thigh-high stockings, which uh, was a really nice sight to see. Very colorful and, and her translucent body and her blonde hair and, and uh, very interesting. Yeah, she she. And the story starts once he can find his words with his trumpet. Yeah, yeah, and of course his trumpet that and uh, his, his vitality and all that. Um, Talk Cos- about Jess Franco's cameos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can talk about those right now. If you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know Jess Franco. Yeah, puts himself in quite a few of the band shots. The band on stage or the party, he's playing the piano, he's playing a something else. He's playing, he's playing a, a piano in one scene, and then the scene trombone. on a trombone, yeah, he's playing something standing up, and yeah, he's a couple of nice scenes, yeah, love he's it. Always, he's always hanging love out playing, which he looks so cool, it looks like totally part of the band, yeah, yeah. He had the black mustache and goatee, his hair is kind of frosted and shit. Um, it was a good period of him, and that's kind of the look of his that people identify the most with his image is like this phase of just for like, sure. Kind of the later Harry on yeah. stuff. Um, so we see um, after she conjures up, uh, let's see, body appears. Yeah, he sends a play. So then we see uh, they go to the party and you see a really great cast. Klaus Kinski, Dennis Price, and um, Margaret Lee. 
Uh, Margaret Lee, I'm talking about her first. Uh, she's in Bloody Judge, and I think she's in a couple, like she's in a lot of British stuff. Uh, she has like one of the sexiest scars above her lip I've ever seen. I don't know if you notice that. She has this really oh. cool scar above her lip. They keep showing it really quick. I was like, wow. Yeah, she looked like pretty tough in this, you know. That scar huh. is really, really, really sharp. I was so hypnotized by her eyes. I don't think I was ever looking at her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause you see her like watching her a lot and they show her lips and she's just have it right above that, that caught my eye. And, and, uh, Klaus Kinski's eyes look so fucking big in this film. They're always huge. But in this film, there's a shot where they just look so blue and like, they're like, you know, I have big eyes and his eyes are just like huge, you know, but I uh, mean, he always looks completely mental. Yeah. And there's a scene, which I'll get to later, but there's a scene I love. It's total Klaus Kinski where he's, talking about this story and he's like this prince or he's walking down the stairs like all these naked women right by him as he's walking of course you know he has to be klaus kinski with eight naked right. women you know <laughs> not one but <laughs> uh so yeah that's funny um and then of course uh dennis price is great in this too he's uh i really enjoy him the more i watch him and franco was a big fan of his i guess he drank a lot and he was drunk on set and stuff quite a bit but when they would start, he would he would snap right to it, and he was good. But he definitely liked to to drink a lot and stuff. So, uh, yeah, he's 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 fantastic in this. He's in Dracula's Daughter later, and uh, the uh, Frankenstein films, um, both of those, and, and he's in quite a bit. And then, of course, um, uh, uh, so La Miranda, Vampiros um, Lesbos, he's in that. Yeah, and he's oh, wow. in, uh, quite a bit of stuff. So, yeah, he's definitely a good actor. Um, so also, okay, so too, watching this, uh, of course, I see Diabolical Dr. Z with the blonde woman going Miss Death, killing the people. I also see um, Succubus, which is made right before this, of the blonde woman going through killing the people or being there. Um, and quite a few scenes of Succubus in this, actually. There's a scene where she's at the party later, Maria Rome, and Margaret Lee's kissing her, and they're dropping the feathers on her, and the guy's painting her face and all that. Oh, that seems fast. <laughs> runs in the party and grabs her and pulls her out of there, just like in Succubus, where she's being kissed and he runs in and pulls her out of the thing. And what are you doing in here? And oh. he yells at her and all that stuff. Like, oh, that's just like that scene. And and he had that same thing that he set up. Um, so yeah, quite a few shots of that. And then also, Succubus had vertigo ties, and there's some shots in this too that remind me of Vertigo with uh, like the icy blonde that's death and that comes back into life and there's a scene where she's walking down this corridor of this home that they're at outdoors and kind of like a shot at a vertigo and just a couple of nice little shots in there that was really, really nice that I kind of saw watching this with some of the influences. Um, but yeah. Well, one thing I didn't like is that the, there's too many optical effects, all the, the different colors and the, the waving of the thing too much, a little bit, it went on too long. It wasn't, throughout as much as i thought it was going to be but those few scenes it seemed like they would have just slowed down some of the trippy fucking acid shit you know it would have been a little tighter i think franco wanted that vision more of less you know because it does kind of date it a little bit you know yeah i like trippy goofy stuff i hear you <laughs> yeah, but... to keep, i feel like i'm arguing with you but <laughs> like... dumb shit. no which is fine I mean, we should have different opinions on side. that's still awesome but no to me it just kind of dates it because you're showing what was a popular effect at the time, just like if you're doing a bad fifties effect or an eighties effect or something, it, it kind of dates the film where if you didn't rely on something that it just cheeses it up, I think, you know, uh, I like, I don't know. I, yeah. I'm okay with it being of the moment and of the time because I love those times and I love those moments. 
yeah, yeah. I want to go to there when I see that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, what a wonderful world that was. <laughs> yeah, no, it was different, different times for sure. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, Maria Rome. Uh, yeah, got, got her. Um, flower framed. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I know that later on. Um, Another thing with the whole Venus and furs thing or whatever, I mean, just, just that I liked how the scene so much where she's feeling up the uh, statue, presumably. Oh, yeah, at the party, right, right, right. Whatever, and she's just, like, feeling the statue's tits and just lying there while the awesome Chet Baker music's playing. And, and Maria and, Rose War and uh, uh, Margaret Lee's watching her from across the room while she's doing that, yeah. And yeah. then she comes over and starts, like, hitting on her and making out yeah. with her. And that's pretty all oh, wonderful. <laughs> and then the guy start painting her. The guy and uh, um, yeah, Paul it's Mueller. so weird how as soon as they start kissing, then it, yeah, it all goes into that like insane psychedelic scene that was just like so out of nowhere that you didn't see that coming at all. And yeah, yeah. I love that end part where the guy, um, you know, uh, with, with the with the feathers, like just makes that one last like poof with like well, I don't know what to do with the silly feathers. Good, like <laughs> it's just so random. I don't know. And yeah, it's funny and, how the guy like freaks out on her, like, if that's your scene, you know, <laughs> like I'm out of here. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, if that was like anyone's scene, I'd be like, Yes, let's do that. Like, why would you pull her away from like people painting her and throwing feathers on her while she makes out with a hot babe? Like, like why like if that's your scene, dude? <laughs> like, if that's not well, your yeah. scene, I don't know about you. <laughs> well, I think I think from his mindset, like that was his thing, and he was everything that he was obsessed with. Right then was her, and he was devoting everything to her. So then he probably felt like when he was doing his thing, when he looked away, she was indulging in something else that was away from him. So he probably felt like, you know, like she was going to go off and be away from him. So, so he reached out to grab that, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a possession, yeah. Um, yeah. So, but uh, no, but before that. Um, little stylish things I liked without going into all the lists and all that stuff, which I'll, I'll do that later. But uh, the scene where Dennis Price, when she starts killing everybody, Dennis Price is playing the piano and you hear her footsteps first. And uh, after he stops playing and then it disappears and he looks, he's a seer. And then he sees her reflection in the mirror. Then he looks to where she would be and she's not there. And then he goes and smears, mirrors, everybody goes in and she's laying on the bed and you see her in the three different mirrors and how he's framed. And he's really just fucking throwing all the mirrors of the shots. It's so amazing. And the whole sequence of she's there, she's not there, she's there, not there. And then all the images and him laying there and thinking about it and going into his heart attack and dying. And that whole sequence is probably my favorite part of the whole movie is, is that. Totally. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like him. Sure. I was just like, wow. I sat back and just like, yeah, her first kill is the best. Yeah. Editing the music, how it builds, and just everything is just perfect. It's just so good. She's like staring in the mirror, looking at herself and like licking her lips. Like, yeah. So beautiful. It's cool too. Like, she has like the long blonde hair. She has the brown bob. She has the blonde wig that's kind of stacked, kind of smaller, you know. And yeah, she's got a lot of good looks with this, you know. But uh, yeah, very, very amazing. Let's see what else we got. Uh, I liked, um, uh, oh yeah, so Paul Mueller, we talked about him a second ago, the guy dropping the feathers and stuff. It's cool because I think this might be the first Paul Mueller movie that he does with Franco because he goes on to do Eugene Desaad and just, you know, 15 or 20 Franco films later on. But, uh, but yeah, he's, he's fun in this. He's not really used a lot. He's like the kind of weird guy that's at the party trying to score with everybody, you know. Hey, you're hot. Hey, come with me. Yeah. You know, trying to drink. Hey, that's my bottle and stuff. 
some of the dubbing. Yeah, exactly. Trying to do everything in there. Um, and two, I liked, uh, which I made a note of this, her nails. When she's with him, or every time she's making love or seducing somebody, her nails are huge. She has the big, long, clear nails, and then she has the long, red, painted nails. They're almost like claws or talons, you know. Um, cool. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, and no, I was like, ooh, and, they, and he really emphasizes, like, shows them almost like she's, like, you know, fucking devouring them or killing them. It's really, really, really cool. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, all the mirrors in the room. Uh, the house party scenes. Oh, yeah. So the theme of, um, which was used in Succubus, is what, probably the first one maybe is the theme of a party going on and a couple at the party and the couple have kind of a discord and the guy or the woman flirts with somebody and then the other person goes off with somebody else or something. They do that with this of him with her and then his girlfriend um, being jealous and then, you know, talking to somebody else and watching all that. He uses that a lot later on in films like that's one of his plot devices that i caught in some of the dietrich films later and in succubus and in quite a few that he likes to use and it's a good it's a good solid uh plot device that i always dig that i saw that and mm-hmm. i totally identified with that um let's see what else i like um yeah talk about uh, margaret lee's great mouth scar <laughs> uh mm-hmm. and then um all of uh maria rome's wigs and outfits are great on this um uh, she pulls one to, oh yeah, okay, like this. Um, oh yeah, uh, well, okay, actually, we'll, we'll go down the list. Actually, I'll go with that on the list. Did you did you pay attention to any of the uh, headboards in this film? Ooh, um, minute, I'm <laughs> okay. So back Watch to this price. Three in the morning in a bath. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Like I'm trying uh, to go back into the bath and remember. Yeah, that. no, because I because I had watched that. I was like, okay, I, I kind of wanted to make a note as I was watching this. Um, um, Rita, not Blue Rita, but his girlfriend. There's another bunch. Rita, Blue Rita. The, the uh, so his she has just regular brass kind of a bed frame. Uh, when they go later to Istanbul, when he's with Rita, they have this cool red kind of a headboard, kind of like a pleather leather one. But the best one is Dennis Price's house where she lays on the bed. That headboard goes all the way up, like almost up the wall. And it's wooden and it's got this like. Yeah, that wasn't just nice, a headboard. That was like a, what do you call it? There's not like a name for it. Is it a canopy bed when like there's four giant posts? Maybe, but but it had just a big backing board like behind it. I mean, it didn't have columns around. It was just that headboard was like huge. It's almost like a fucking shelf or something like a, like a six foot. I mean, I was like, wow. It's like. Okay, that's the fucking king headboard right there, whatever that is, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that was like a fucking like a king's like a castle bed, king in the castle's bed, which is interesting because that house um, was uh, I watched that in the thing later on. That was uh, an Italian producer, um, was it Carlo Ponti? Uh, let's see, uh, it was oh yeah. Uh, uh, Carlo Ponti's house. Yeah. So Carlo Ponti was this Italian film producer and uh, he ended up getting a divorce from his wife and his wife rented out the house to, for film shoots and that. So like the big marble house, Franco talks about like all the shots of, of Dennis Price's room, her walking in that outdoor hallway with, at a big outdoor area and, and the different rooms, the party also was all shot in this big house. They rented that gorgeous out. House. Yeah. Which is this millionaire fucking Italian producer's house from the 40s or 50s. That was a beautiful fucking house, you know. 
but uh, yeah, so that was, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. That's, yeah, the pool and the Venus statue and all that shit. That's like, that's a good location, man. You can get a lot of, a lot of stuff out of that. Um, okay. What else we got here? Uh, bah, 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 bah. Um, okay. I liked to, uh, being a photographer, I liked the Olga photography scene. I liked the whole setup of that. It was very realistic how she set up the lights and she was like looking at her and judging it, moving her. And like the way Franco shot that, like that's a legit setup of how she was moving things around and checking out her and moving the lights and the, and the, her in the frame and setting her up. So I thought it was really well made. And he took the time to kind of pat, not pat it out, but to let it go at his natural length. You know, it wasn't some cheesy close up shot, close up shot, a lot of quickly edited bullshit. You know, I was, I thought a very, um, realistic portrayal, you know, it's got a minor thing, but I don't know. I'm always sticker for yeah. things that look real, you know, um, and which remind me later of the, uh, Eugenie Desaad photography scene where they kill her, you know, Paul Mueller and, uh, sold Miranda where they kill, uh, Alice Arno, they were pose and they do the photography thing and they kill her for the shots, you know? Oh yeah. 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 Which is like two or three films later than this or maybe about four films later. Um, your memory wows me. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> well, things I love, I'll try to memorize, you know. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, yeah, also, too, that scene, Chris, is really cool because uh, there was a photo or, like, a painting of, like, death. It was, like, a, a woman, like, with a skull and a woman's face that was kind of like a death next to her when they were doing the photography. Oh, yeah, the thing that she was taking photos of, that was a really cool... Uh, I mean, death has, like, the best eye for art. All the art yeah. and all the films, I'm always, like, yes more please more yes yeah and like me i'll see that and then i want to like find out who it is and then i learn about that painter or that certain thing or whatever that sculptor or certain pieces of art from watching these films as well so it's great you know you do those things like that as a good filmmaker you give art jazz and culture to people that if it connects they want to find out more you know right right it's really good to share so um what else we got here uh see we got um Oh yeah, and that scene was really awesome too. How he shot that. There's a shot where after she's done photogging or after she's done um, um, shooting her and stuff, and she starts making out with her, which that usually doesn't happen to the film shoots. But I guess when it's two women and, and then whatever, you know, they're down down to go. Uh, <laughs> he shoots a shot through a film strip that's hanging down, which is really cool. There's like a film strip hanging, and he kind of like takes the camera, moves it behind this film strip and shoots through. He's like getting real art through the shots. I was like, oh, that's a fucking great shot. So yeah, really, really good, good, good setups. And his, his choosing of shot selections in this were really good. So yeah, you gotta love how he's just fearless about being all avant-garde creative like that, even though it's, you know, sometimes his films are supposed to be more straightforward. I guess this one is all psychedelic, but yeah, he leans into it. He doesn't shy away. And this is also one of his first films where he photographs two naked women together in the landscape, which I like, which I've shot myself where you treat the women like scenery. They're together. You just kind of, you pan across and go up and down each body part and go through. And, 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 and he does this, this film with the two women, uh, Margaret Lee and her, where he's shooting them just as they're like, you know, landscapes yeah. and does whole landscape shots of them, which I was like, there you go. And he does I was it. just thinking you'd be happy because of the zoom ins. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh what else we got here uh i liked uh oh yeah when she was uh later on when she's walking nude with the candelabra when she seduces her the third person and uh she walks her back to the camera margaret lee and she's holding the candelabra and they use the same shot of uh rhea Rome where she's where they see her as dead you know where she's got the 
purple lips and they use it for Klaus Kinski and for Margaret Lee and for Dennis Price where they're making love with her or whatever and they see that vision of her. Yeah, her bloody tit. You gotta love the tit with the dried Exactly. (laughs) They see the same shot. The same And Klaus stabbed her and then sunk his mouth into her like he was gonna suck on her like a vampire. Oh yeah, thank you. So so I kind of skipped over that beginning. So when you see them at the party and they kind of like she comes into the shot in the very beginning. She's that beautiful red dress. She looks so amazing. And I was kind of wondering where it's going to go. And they basically like, she shows up at this party and uh, invited. And she goes, and they like, kind of like, oh, walk her back in this room. Immediately, as soon as she walks to the room, they like lock the door and just start fucking raping her and whipping her and fucking just be, you know, cutting her and shit. And she's kind of into it and she's fighting it. And you're like, okay. So Franco thing was just. Disturbing. I thought she was kind of into it. Yeah. Because if you watch it, because she's screaming. And then she's like kissing back and she's like, before he cuts her, you see, she's like kind of going with it. She's not like, Oh yeah. At that point. Pushing, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah she's I not thought pushing. you at the beginning is, I mean, it seems like until she gets whipped enough into submission. And yeah. Because at first it's like, like come down. here, come here. Then she starts like kind of realizing that like she has to play along. I thought right. she was kind of submitting and say like, cause she didn't want to be in pain. Right. And so, so it's interesting though. It's like, that's the whole Franco thing before, which, has come up in past in his films where it's always he, he always says not always but there's a lot of situations where I have the women being attacked or raped at first and then they kind of go along with it and then they enjoy it if they don't stop if they stop because it's their it's don't their moral stop. upbringing and their religious so they have to offer resistance you know so it's that that whole thing but so like that has that thing of where she's like that and then he brings a knife out and cuts her but when you see that shot, it's almost like they're vampires because she's laying there and Dennis Price is kind of hovering on her and Margaret Lee's hovering on her. They're like drinking your blood and they're like vampires. And of course, totally. he cuts her and he's drinking your blood. His mouth comes up. He's got blood all over him, like Dracula and Nosferatu uh, later on. So he's got the whole shit. I was like, oh, this is awesome. So he filmed the ritual stuff. feeding and like in fascination. Yeah, yeah. We so all, you have all that. We all converge. <laughs> <laughs> So you have that that scene where it's like, oh my god, it's like totally cool. And then, so then back to Klaus Kinski in the end. So what's weird is like, she goes to visit him and she sees him. He says, oh yeah, I remember you. And then he goes off and tells her like a story. And then he's in the okay. And then it's like, and then he dies in the story, but then he dies in reality. I don't know that part kind of confused me. That is a little bit twisted. That part was a little maybe not linear enough for me. But like, I went along with it. Become unstuck in time. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's what I would think in my mind whenever stuff like that would go down. It's just like, yeah, he's just playing with time. I and mean, he said he was playing with time. He was right. So he kind of goes on. But I was just like, okay, because uh, you think that he was going to go back to something else. But yeah, so he dies the thing, and and it was cool. And you figure that was going to go that way. But uh, but yeah, no, that that was that was pretty interesting. I thought that was cool. But he comes down with all the naked women by him, and he's like, you know, the king, and he has to switch. The whole SNM thing where he flips, where he's now he's uh, he submits himself to any desire that anybody else has. He you know they take his turn and they burn it and do all this other stuff. Yeah, and uh, the, the master becomes the slave for twenty four hours, and she she uses her twenty four hours to the fullest. Yeah, and then also too, I thought about I just thought how how the 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 masochist in this is her. Uh, Wanda and also Jimmy because she uh, was indulged in the game that was killed and so 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 she so she wanted pain and suffered and died for it and then Jimmy was basically had this gift and this 
this thing, but he had to suffer, which I understand as an artist where you have to kind of suffer for your art. You kind of have to like put yourself in these conditions to get inspiration or which sometimes is true. Sometimes it's bullshit, whatever you feel. Some people have to be drunk or stoned or whatever, go on a trip and have these visions and write. And some people have to just sit down and get in the morning and write and have everything, whatever, you know, but it's like, he also had to kind of suffer and the suffering was the process of getting this tune or this vision or this woman or whatever it was. So, so he liked to suffer and his part of the thing, even though he was going along with it, he liked to get off on suffering all the way through until the end when he realized he was dead that we learned and it was all whatever the most reality of that is. But, but, but it's also just allowing himself to give in. To, I mean, that's, yeah. Like it, the, there's that part where he's lying in bed with, um, uh, what is this girlfriend's name again? Uh, Rita. Rita. Yeah. He's, he's in bed with Rita and he's telling her, Oh baby, everything's going to be different from now on. I promise, you know? Right. And then that, and that's what he's saying out loud. And then, you know, she smiles and, you know, tucks into him and, but then, it, you know, the dialogue over and then he says, but down deep, you know, I knew that I, I, I would do anything for Wanda. Wanda still had a hold on me. I would, what was it, go to hell if that's what she wanted, you know? Right. I mean, that he basically says, you know, like, like he's, he's just gonna, even though he knows that he has the love of a good woman, like he could just be happy ever after. He's gonna feel the pain because that is just what he has to do. We've all been, well, yeah, we've all been, there. I mean, I've been there plenty of times and I've, I always go for it. I'm always like, yes, t- drag me to hell. You know, <laughs> like I want to feel yeah. it all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, but that's interesting. Like, like, cause I went through a thing where like I got to a certain point in my life where you realize that suffering is part of the thing, like say with sports or with wrestling, it's like, Oh, I'm getting fake beat up, but I'm really getting hurt, but I'm getting hurt for other people's enjoyment. People want to see me get some hurt. You know, they think it is, but it's fake, whatever, you know, but I'm still in pain and stuff. And it's being pain is part of the process. Oh, I feel good, but I'm in pain. And it's like, that whole weird thing get to a point where you're just like, okay, well, where does it stop and where does it begin? And, and you know, yep. turning it on and off and all that stuff. And even going through things and all that shit. And, and I don't know, watching some of these things kind of enlightened me the last few months of just certain things where you kind of, I don't know, almost like the being like where they talked about the center of the saint. It's like, well, the saint is just as much of a center because they're, going through the suffering of life and during the suffering. And that's what they're getting off on with subconsciously or not, or the other person's indulging in everything they want to do and not worrying about whatever the future may or may not hold. And that's, you know, it's the same thing. You're one person's indulging other person's the S and the M. So it's just a different side of it, you know, whether they realize. Right. Or not, you know, so. Yeah. But, so yeah, it was, it's interesting. All these, it's really, that's what I like about films that are art because they have the inspired conversation and thought and, it's more than just a, a story and a plot and A, B, and C. And it's really good. A, a lot of good. He doesn't love talking about the passing S&M back and forth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even though he doesn't have any kinks or anything in this film. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. And then I think almost the end here. Um, yeah. So I, I like the Red Room scene. Uh, David Lynch bull stuff. I Red like. Rum? Yeah. Yeah. Red Rum. Um, all that. Um, okay. And then. Okay. So let me. Let me knock out this list real quick before we start going too long here. Um yeah, so basically, <clears throat> we had a body of water quite a bit in this. Um, we have uh, boats, uh, not really sailboats, we have boats. Um, I can't, that's right at the very beginning, especially the body of water. The scenes of Rio are so pretty. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And of course, body of water, you have the body of her washing up on the water. So there's a body of water right there, especially, you know, so yeah, that's the totally. uh, body of water. Yeah. Oh yeah. The Istanbul locations are great. Um, there's also a shot here. I picked up too, where when they're fleeing at the end, they jump in that red car. There's like this town there in this like village and that shots you or that locations used in, uh, uh, Diabolical Dr. Z and it's Succubus. Diabolical Dr. Z where the guy with the big beard is walking down the area it's all fogged around him and that's that shot right there at that same location. And then cool. he returned back to it for this. But yeah, yeah, so that was really cool. Um, okay, so boats. Uh, no palm trees, didn't catch that. Uh, no jungle sound effects, but plenty of other cool sound effects in this. Uh, a lot of yeah, cool sound effects. Sure. A lot of overdubs. Um, number six, this is funny. Chained up person. Well, the person that's chained up is Klaus Kinski. Yeah. Up there at the I, was cool. that <laughs> that was- I saw that. I'm like, oh, there's one. <laughs> Which is cool, you know. But Klaus. I, did, I, never, I guess I didn't expect that to be the, the answer for that question ever. Yeah. So, and, and Klaus said to Franco, I guess, when he shot that scene, goes, do you want me to be naked? And Franco said, well, no, because they might cut it if, you know, if he's naked, they might. Or so, so he said Klaus would do whatever for him and stuff. So, you know. I love that Klaus is volunteering. He's like, I'll, yeah. I'll strip. And yeah, I'll do whatever. I'll, I'll be naked. I'll hang be me. Naked. I'll be naked. Exactly. <laughs> That's so Klaus. Yeah, yeah. He's awesome. <laughs> um, so you have that Sheena versus him. Okay. So, uh, okay. This one was interesting. Number seven, dance scenes on stage stripping. No stripping, but what I liked is Rita when you see her, she's introduced laying on the ground, singing like on her back against the blue tile. Mm. And Franco used that shot later on in a couple of films, like stripping where it's weird, where they're laying on the ground, stripping and writhing on the ground. I thought that was kind of cool. She's not stripping, but it's the same setup of a woman on stage and everybody watching her at the tables and everything and stuff with the band playing, you know. Um, so yeah, no stripping. Give it up for Rita. She was so hot. Yeah, which is funny because Rita, and then later he made a film called. Uh, Blue Rita, where she uh, has the, the whorehouse or the jazz club or something, I forgot what it was, and has the operation run out of there. Yeah. Um, so that but that cool. was different. That wasn't our, the Rita in this movie. No, 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 no. That was a different woman. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought yeah. it was cool to use that same name in the jazz and stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, okay, sure. number 10, excessive, I'm sorry, uh, number eight, uh, club scenes dancing. There's a, a really cool party scenes that we see especially one where he has everybody kind of freeze and they're all like still oh, yeah, yeah. The camera and they're not moving. And then like Klaus funny moves or somebody. And that's a really nice fucking cool shot, you know? Yeah. Very bizarre trip, which was really nice. Um, you have a weird movie. I saw a Polish movie. I saw once, but I can't think of the name of it, but yeah. Yeah. But I mean, also like at the end, the Rita's, you know, her, when she starts singing the Venus song and yeah, 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 yeah. Dance scene. Against the mirror. That's another cool mirror shot of her against the mirror, you know, singing that song. Sure. Yeah, which I liked that song in that scene. Don't get me wrong. I, I just didn't like that song being thrown over every kill scene, you know. It's almost like shaft, shaft or something, you know, or like, I don't know. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, okay, number nine, jazz music. Well, yeah, of course, this film is a fucking a whole jazz extravaganza. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. A lot of good music in this film. Great. Um, Manfred Mann's in it. I guess he had just started at this with his career, or whatever. Manfred Mann's Earth Band, and he was a good musician later on. And he's the dude playing the piano with the glasses, kind of a white dude with a little beard. And uh, he uh, did a lot of music for this, so he's on the film and does the music for it. Does a really good job. 
okay, number 10, excessive zooms. Not really. Number 11, out of focus. We talked about that with yeah, there was excessive zooms from the girls. And I was saying that, like, you, I was thinking how happy you would be when the girls were, you know, playing together and there was all the excessive zooms. Well, yeah, I mean, that was it. I mean, he, he was close shot, but he wasn't zooming in and out. When I talk about excessive zooms, oh, yeah, that he later on, wall, wall, like, wall, wall, yeah, wall. he does that. But this, I, yeah, I he was, does a lot of close ups. I guess I didn't realize how excessive you meant by excessive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, not just zoomed in. No, I mean, just he does a lot of zooming it's in and out. Getting clarification on this. For yeah, yeah, time. I got you. Um, okay uh out of focus shots number 11 yeah but they're done in a great way every time you see her coming in the shot she's out of focus because she's a ghost she's not a real person so it makes sense uh they go use out of focus shots to remember past things and stuff so it's it's all done with a purpose so yeah it's great on that uh number 11 or number 12 mirror shots a plus on mirror shots this film is fucking a mirror shot the only other film had more mirrors to film the other side of the mirror. You know, this film has, <laughs> so, which reminded me of this film as well. As I mirror a lot of the ideas I like about a uh, lost love spirit, you know, like her father on the other side of the mirror, the mirrors, the ghost and stuff. Yeah, so the film little... did lack some Howard Vernon, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. I was missing that. Um, but yeah, a lot of mirrors and stuff. You see Rhea Rome against the mirror. Uh, James Dare in the beginning is hitting that glass pane. It's like a mirror. You have, of course, the dance price. All this mirror looks so amazing in the mirror. Like it looks like she's. Like, I mean, I kept like I even paused some of the scenes, like when she's looking in the mirror, because it's oh, like it, it's almost like the camera times the mirror. It's like playing a tricks or something, because it's like she's. I don't know. It doesn't even seem like she's looking at like what it's looking at. Like she, it just looks like an optical illusion because her eyes are so big and her face is so pure and gorgeous. She just looks yeah. like like she's like. Like the one in the mirror isn't a reflection of her, you know. Like it looks. Well, like no, it's, yeah, because it's, it's almost like it's like I was saying. You see her; she's she's shown a lot in mirror shots, but then not in the reality. So it's almost like she's almost like a vamp, but like a right a, more real uh, on the vampire, you know, type deal. Yeah, yeah totally. She, yeah, so that, that was really cool, and like, like to me, that's such a beautiful, inexpensive special effect. That's more of an imagination a perception thing that our eyes can see and something like that is when I like to p- point out Franco's uh, imagination on a budget, which I love is that type of thing where you can do so much with so little. And yeah, he's so playful. Yeah. It just gives so much of a depth of imagination. I bet he was amazing in bed with Lena. <laughs> Creativity and his playfulness. He probably just made her laugh and just, yeah. you know, did all these silly, wonderful things. I, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Yeah, no, they, they, they seemed always really cool, especially as they got older. And, <laughs> and relationship and it was a great thing. Um, number, we got 12, no, uh, number 13, mind control themes. Uh, yeah, definitely. Mind control of her controlling his mind of the spirit and he's obsessed with her and, and like we were talking about and the obsession of, of being, that whole thing is driving him to the ends of the earth and everything we talk about he's having dreams about her and shouting you know wanda and his dreams and yeah well we just watching him smoking like what the fuck is this yeah who's this wanda oh it doesn't matter (laughs) really it doesn't matter you're fucking all obsessed with her every day you see her uh okay number 14 magic tongue scenes well no lena no magic tongue but we did see some magic lips but there was tongue there was magic it wasn't the magic lena tongue but there was like did like there are some things where she's looking in the mirror and she's like 
licking her lips and, and being you're right you're right i forgot about the licking the lips. yeah yeah okay 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 there's a little bit yeah okay there's shades there's of it tongue. yeah okay there's action yeah honorable mention yeah uh yeah, number 15 yeah. <laughs> 15 number 15 uh red light yeah uh when he said at the bar there's a red light facing on his face when he's drinking um, that was the main one that I caught and then, uh, maybe one or two, but that was, that was the main, main one that caught my attention. Uh, 16 sheepskin rug or, uh, masturbation scenes with a letter C item negative on that. Uh, 17 mad scientist, no mad scientists, 18 fish tank shots. That's negative. 19 talking parrot or talking animals, negative. Uh, 20, uh, end credits, yes or no? Yes, great end credit sequence. Uh, it doesn't say the end, but you see everybody's name and list all that good stuff. Fantastic end. end yeah, sequence. very cool. Uh, oh, yeah, so let's actually, let's, let's talk about the end before we go uh, on to other stuff. So the end. So did you like him? Okay, spoiler alert. If you haven't watched this film, turn off now and watch the film and come back to this point. Oh, the spoiler two, alert. One. So did you like him finding himself dead at the end? Or what's your thought on that? um i mean yeah of course like it's i mean it's the only way it could have ended i don't know like i mean i you saw it coming i mean i i I don't know like but i I mean yeah i i liked it It was like because you knew that there was this story unraveling this mystery and and yeah that was the i don't know what else what else it could have see that's interesting you said mystery because all the voiceover stuff reminds me of like a 40s mystery now you're talking about like and I looked at the body and it was me. And, you know, I, right. I went down the whirlpool further and further. I went, I didn't know if I, you know, all that was very, you know, um, she was a dame. She came into my office. She was blonde. She brought the world right. underneath, you know, that type of, yeah. So it's like, there you have a certain adolescence to it or like a certain, you know, but I kind of find that charming and like kind of the sweetest, like the whole thing is just a dream. And that it's like a, you know, there's sort of a childlike thing to that dream in a weird way, a twisted way. Yeah. I don't know. I just kind of wish that maybe like say everything is goes the way it goes. They flee, and then he sees her grave like he does. And he sees the fur coat and stuff, and then I wish that maybe the cops would have arrested him there and said that she was dead the whole time. It was his imagination, and then he had to like serve the crime. That was my my opinion. Like that's how I would have ended it. Like him getting sent away and like you know knowing that this happened, but you don't know it happened. He's still a victim, but he's still alive. I don't know. Yeah, but then he'd have to go to jail forever and that's the stuff. But the whole like he's dead thing is makes it just more like magical, spooky. And I, I don't know. I prefer the he's dead. But then he'd be blowing more than a trumpet in prison, let me tell you. <laughs> All right, now he's just going to play Chet Baker and the stars forever. Yeah, and there you go. Um, there it is. Yeah, it, it's more than no trumpets in prison. Exactly. Just the ball sacks. Oh, okay. Um <laughs> <laughs> Which actually is a true instrument. Uh, okay, uh, number 21, um, handwritten notes, nothing of that sort here. Uh, number 22, spiral staircase, negative. 23, inept cops, no cops in this. Uh, 24, belly chains, nope. What's uh, a spiral staircase? That's crazy. Yeah, I know. It was always, there's usually, it's like, it's that time frame, it's always like in a room where it's just a small little spiral staircase that goes up or a big one or something. Um, Okay, number 25, kinks. Yeah, quite a bit of kinks in this film. That's what this whole thing is based upon, uh, which we could talk about all that. I mean, shit, there's what? There's SM, there's tying up people, there's bloodletting, there's uh, what else is there? There's uh, uh, <laughs> obsession compulsion, there's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> there's, 
<laughs> a lot, a lot of, lot of psychosexual stuff in this film. Just a whole, whole catalog. And number twenty-six, great headboards. Yes. So we have the one I talked about. There's also one where there's a big flower on a headboard that I caught in. Uh, I think it was Margaret Lee or somebody had the flower on it. Um, headboard twenty-six. Uh, but yeah, so I caught like two or three really great headboards in this. The best one though is the Dennis Price's one. And finally, twenty-seven, fear or desire, desire to be definitely desire he desires her he desires death he desires whatever the she is or what it brings to him, no matter the cost to me it's it's desire all the way in this yeah yeah sure. really not fear really so you know, yeah fear. it's cool to you know imagine that when you die you feel all the things yeah <laughs> you hope yeah you hope you feel i don't know it's like yeah people's passing like i think the worst thing to like, I always feel bad for people that I know that die if they die in pain, like of sadness or like say suicide where somebody feels like they have, they reach a certain point where they want to just escape the pain or, or if somebody shot, like we had talked about before we did this podcast and mass shooting in my area of how people have fear of, of, and then you kill and it's like, that would suck your last 20 seconds of your life is fear and then death. You know, you hope you experience love or, people crying over you or, or you know something positive whatever it's but it's all That's perception. funny just yesterday we were talking about like it was kind of funny actually that guy accused me he was like you he's like you wouldn't it be terrible like we were talking about shark exploitation and he said wait do you want to die by getting eaten by a shark? And I was like, yes, because <laughs> like I, that's actually that'd be great because you could feel the most pain ever. And, you know, that's, there's right. no other way you could feel that much pain. And uh, to me that like, I think that'd be much cooler than just like going to sleep in your, you know, going to die in your sleep or whatever. I mean, I just meant like when we were talking about like the, I mean, cause he was supposed to be dead the whole time and he was feeling the spectrum of emotion, like the desire is what you're talking about. Like the I see what you're saying, the yeah, desire, yeah, yeah. like it, it, it would be, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm one of those people who just believes that when you die, it's all, you don't feel anything. Right. So it's an, I think it's a very sweet romantic thought to imagine that like you're still going to feel desire and, and fear and longing and lust and all the things that are what it means to be alive. Also too, I think one thing that maybe I, I mean, I still like the ending and it makes sense to me and stuff, but like I always dislike the, it was all a dream type of ending or right. I think where it's like, Oh shit, dude, you kind of like, you're, you you know, and then like the thing happens the next day or, or whatever. I don't know. They do that a lot where it's like, to me, it's always a cop out, but, but with this, sure. film, it makes there is that. we've talked about that before actually. And yeah. like, yeah, I, I usually will diss that as well, but somehow it just works in this one. For it me. does. It does because it's very dreamlike and the linear stuff talked about and the whole ghost and what's true and not true and, and you know, everything her being dead two years. And so, yeah, it does make sense with this of, of all that stuff, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely really like this. Um, I'd say this is what my 80, six Franco film I've watched, I mean 90th Franco film now. I'd say, I mean, I don't know, it's not like my top 10, but I'd put it in my top 20, you know, maybe top 25. Yeah, that's where I'm at with it too. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. I mean, I, I don't diss it. You'd see how it inspired a lot of his other stuff and his themes we talked about and things he uses later and, and a good cast, Kinski and Lee's in it and Margaret Rome and it's a good period, good creativity. Music. Got a lot of good stuff, music. Good music and all this good stuff to it. Uh, yeah, it's a very, very good film. Yeah. So, yeah, so much good stuff too. It's great. 
yeah, yeah, it's, it's very cool. Uh, and uh, Man from Man's different than the music of his other films. And, and I would say it's required watching for a Franco fan. Yeah, it is. It is. It's like definitely like it, it, to me, it's like top 20, but I would say it's, it's, I would say it's probably one of the first 10 films you should watch when you get into Franco because it's a good, if you like these themes, then you'll like his other films he does later because like you talked right. about, you know, you see, oh, you like this, you like this, this, or this, or if you like this part, you like this, this, or this. So, yeah, 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 definitely got a lot of touchstones to it. So, um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I recommend it. I think I'm going to watch the shorter version later, kind of see the differences of it, and see how the different the Italian version of it. See if they run faster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a lot of, <laughs> exactly all the slow motion stuffs cut. Something but they but they cut out the ending is what I hear too. It's not they, he doesn't find his body either. So I'm curious. I got to have the car chase though. Yeah, so I mean, I'm curious how how it wraps Baby up. car chase. Uh, get one in there. Yeah, yeah. So, alrighty. Well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Uh, film twenty three again. Uh, Venus and Furs, aka Black Angel. Uh, do you have any closing words you'd like to add? Um, oh, nothing that I can think of. Just that it's a banger. Yeah, it's a banger. And you'd recommend it, and uh, and you're gonna go around seeing Venus and Furs probably for the next two yeah. weeks. Get your Chet Baker uh, albums ready with a little exactly, more. exactly. So, all righty. Well, <laughs> uh, thanks for joining me again, and I will see you on the next episode. What is it, just? Mm-hmm.